43% of people say schools are focusing too much on racism publicly, but that number is 10 points lower privately. So there are people performing for their political quote unquote side. If we're chasing some sort of ideal because we think everyone else thinks it and we're not actually speaking our minds, that's crazy. We need to be able to have conversations to not attach character flaws to people if we disagree with them, to be able to have healthy arguments and actually talk to each other and not just lie about our opinions. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how much longer are you out there on the West Coast? I am here for another day or two, I think. I have to even check my flight schedule. I've been very underwater doing book writing, so I I don't even remember at this point. <laughs> when is the, the manuscript due? I'm pretty sure like January. It needs to be pretty much done. And there is quite a lot to be done, but I've made good progress. I've been a hermit. I haven't really left the house in almost a week now. So getting it done. How much can you write in a day? I'm always curious to see people's habits on this stuff. If I've already researched like a chapter, I can I can bang out like 3,500, 4,000 words in a day if I need to. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, if I, if I have the groundwork, I, I outline very thoroughly. And you're in Texas right now? Yeah, I'm in Dallas for the podcast movement conference. I'm doing a, a panel discussion with the marketing person for... Athletic Greens, which sponsors a different podcast that I do. So that should be fun. I haven't been back in Dallas in a while. so But I don't know if I'm going to get to see much of the city because we're doing this and then I go do that panel and then I'm getting out of here. But we have so much to talk about today. Uh, on today's show, we have a big shakeup in public health leadership as the CDC plans reforms and Dr. Fauci steps down. Then we'll talk about the concept of collective illusions and where we find them in the American public. And then finally, we're going to bring you a bunch of updates from a busy news week, including two convictions in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, major accusations from a former Twitter executive turned whistleblower, and primary races in New York and Florida, including a special election, two special elections in New York. But first, Ricky, we got some big news yesterday as the Biden administration made a long-awaited announcement on student loans. This is a huge move from the White House and already a controversial one. Let me just at least outline some of the contours of this. Most of it was what we were expecting. So we were expecting Biden to relieve up to $10,000 for most borrowers. The cap seemed to be what we were expecting it to be. So he's capping relief to people who make under $125,000 a year or $250,000 for married couples. He's extending the moratorium on payments for student loans and interest payments to the end of the year, but says he's not going to go any further. There are a couple other reforms he threw in here, but the big change was that he doubled the amount of relief available to students who received the Pell Grant. So he doubled it from $10,000 to $20,000 for students who receive and are eligible for the Pell Grant. I guess we could start there. What is the Pell Grant and what does this mean for this this set of initiatives? Yeah. So the Pell Grant provision here also requires that they make less than $125,000. But essentially, it's government money for students who need to pay for college who are able to demonstrate like a more exceptional need for financial help than just typical student loans. And the grants don't need to be paid back. There's a specific amount that they're given annually. I think right now the cap is around a little more than $6,000. And it's around 30% of undergraduates who receive Pell Grants and 7 in 10 loan bar- borrowers who tend to have more debt on average. But it's based on kind of an additional financial need, essentially. 
and there's obviously a huge debate raging about the effectiveness of this program. Let's start with AOC's argument and the case for this. Growing up, I was told since I was a child, your destiny is to go to college. That's what's going to lift our family up and out. That is our future. That's what we're here to accomplish. 17 years old, when college recruiters started coming to my high school saying, this is worth it. And we still do that today because it's teenagers signing up for what is often hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And we just do that. So the White House says that 43 million borrowers will be eligible for this and that 90% of the relief will go to people earning less than $75,000 a year. And if you're in AOC's camp, you're pointing to a couple of statistics here. Total student debt has more than doubled since 2011. The percentage of households with student debt has almost tripled from 8% in 1989 to 21% in 2019. Since 1980, the total cost of both four-year public and four-year private college has nearly tripled. Pell Grants used to cover nearly 80% of the cost of a four-year public college degree for students, but now they only cover a third. And you put that all together, and then also, I'd imagine she argues with some evidence that black borrowers, female borrowers, et cetera, have disproportionately higher debt. Those people are saying, all right, this set of reforms is going to help those who need it the most. What do you make of that argument, Ricky? I don't disagree with the argument that she's making in that clip at all. I think I disagree with her conclusion from it, but I think that we do have these predatory loans that historically teenagers had no clue what they were getting themselves into when signing up for them and that the federal government was essentially trapping them in debt that they couldn't get out of. I completely agree with her on that. I don't think the solution is to just like do something completely radical and make college free or forgive more debt than we already have. But I do think the solution is like a cultural movement away from degrees that are clearly not paying back the dividends that people expected them to. And so I, I do agree with her in some sense. And I, as much as I am like a kind of anti-spending libertarian, I think that there are so many Americans who are in a really shitty situation just because the federal government created a terrible system for them. And so I'm I'm sympathetic to the argument. And I I think that we need to rectify what we have done. But I'm disappointed to see this kind of like band-aid solution moving forward rather than a systemic reform because these colleges are still insulated from free market pressures and from the fact that like if the federal government is backing these loans, they can jack up tuition forever. And they're not even really discussing career preparedness and the fact that all these students went to these universities and still can't pay back their loans goes to show that we've just created a system that's completely divorced education from careers. There are two parts of that critique, right? One is, is this effective? And the other, is it fair? I'll hold the fairness point for a second because there's, I think this is where I think progressives are going to have some of the biggest challenges. But on the effectiveness front, I agree with you. So much of what she's saying is true, but then the proposal actually could make this situation worse. She's saying like, see, students are taking out all this money, costs are going up. If, you know, there's no reason to think that this wouldn't just keep increasing costs. Uh, Larry Summers made an argument essentially to that effect and also said that this will increase inflation. You have the fact that the majority of adults in this country don't have a college degree. So, you know, the last Pew uh, statistics I, I saw have it at 37.9% of adults, 25 plus have a college degree. So this is going to, uh, even if there's an income cap, 
this is not going to the vast majority of Americans. So you're basically asking non-college graduates or future generations to subsidize uh, these loans. And in some cases, these are degrees that we as a society don't want. You know, like, why can't this be tailored to the actual professions that we need as a society? That's what I would have been, I would have done with this. And I think if they have the authority to do this, they could have had the authority to only forgive it for the professions we need, or at least professions we need moving forward. Doctors, nurses, teachers, home health care workers, special education paraprofessionals. You go down that list and say, all right, we need those people. Why don't we incentivize that? Do you think that could have gotten bipartisan support? I think that could have gotten at least more bipartisan support. I mean, if you even if you look at the public data, it's like roughly a third of Americans fall into each category, whether they want to cancel all debt, cancel no debt, or cancel it based on needs. So it's not a strictly partisan issue. There's kind of a gradation here of how people feel about it. I think that would have been more effective. I also think, though, that in the long term, one thing that's not really getting a lot of conversation or not being talked about a lot is that I think Gen Z is kind of waking up to this a little bit. I, I think that the millennials were kind of an unfortunate test case in what happens when, I mean, essentially the way AOC is painting this is like basically like military recruiters, but they're college, uh, like college ambassadors. But what happens when, when careers are divorced from education and education is just seen as something that you have to do in order to achieve. And there's some like really fascinating new statistics that go to show that Gen Z has seen how millennials have kind of crashed and burned, not at their fault, at the fault of these policies. But half of my generation is worried about graduating with debt. And if you look at the percentage of high school students who are planning to go to college in May of 2020, it was 71%. Now it's 51% as of January. And nine in 10 high school students who I think in the past wouldn't have necessarily been thinking about jobs and careers and work. Nine and 10 want colleges to better emphasize career preparedness. And so I think there's going to be some sort of market pressure shift here where maybe universities aren't getting these guaranteed loans from students. And so I think there's there's a chance that there's kind of like a natural cultural change, which I think would be healthy. But I'm also like I to your point, I would much prefer to subsidize and help people who are who are getting jobs in like the medical profession or teaching or or health or social work in places where we have like actual shortages in our country and not all these very theoretical, increasingly theoretical classes and and majors I saw at N- at NYU when I was there. I would go through the course catalog and be like, what is half of this stuff and how will you, you know, here's some of these majors, adventure education at Plymouth State University, bakery science and management at Kansas State University, turf grass science at Penn State, bagpiping at Carnegie Mellon University, costume technology at DePaul. You know, it's hard to imagine that, you know, the American public, the person who either saves up their money to send their kid to school to become a nurse is going to feel good about subsidizing somebody learning floral management at Mississippi State University or the person who decided not to go to college or whose kids didn't go to college. Pretty sure they're not going to feel good about subsidizing people to take on those degrees either. And actually, one such frustrated parent confronted Elizabeth Warren on the trail in 2020. I just want to ask one question. My daughter's getting out of school. I saved all my money. She doesn't have any school money. Am I going to get my money back? So you're going to pay for people who didn't save any money, and those of us that did the right thing get screwed. No, it's not even like that. 
when we started. Of course we did. My buddy had fun, bought a car, went on vacations. I saved my money. He made more than I did. But I worked a double shift, worked extra. My daughter's work, she was 10. So you're laughing. Yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. We did the right thing and we get screwed. This is going to be the sentiment that Democrats and Biden are going to deal with on the campaign trail. Now, I'm not a big fan of this is what the sacrifice I had to make. And now everybody has to make that sacrifice because then we'd never change anything, you know. So I both understand the parents frustration, but that in and of itself is not an argument against reform. But I do think it's a political reality that Biden's going to have to deal with. I completely understand his frustration, the idea that he could have, in retrospect, just not been a responsible parent. And Ultimately, his kid would have been forgiven to a certain degree. Like, I do get that frustration. I I understand that. I'm sure that that's the accumulation of years of hard work and of being very financially careful. Um, I think this would have been a way better move for for Biden if it had been we're we're going to forgive this because we've done wrong by these students, and we're going to make sure that this never happens to another student again. And this isn't just a continuing system and that this isn't just seen as like one bailout of more to come. But I'm completely sympathetic to his sentiment. I don't think that any solution to this is going to be perfectly just and fair because the system was messed up. And, you know, if it's not like, I don't know, you either like there's just it's it's going to be an injustice to kind of correct a larger injustice. And I think that we have to have trade offs at some point. But Regardless, I I just I don't see the long term solutions here, and I I just it's it's frustrating to see that that that's not even addressed. Yeah, I think the challenge that people have there's this piece in the Atlantic by Adam Harris that kind of goes through, you know, his argument for actually making college more affordable, yada yada yada. Part of the frustration I have with watching this debate play out is that it's either college or no college, and there's not a there people aren't uh, differentiating between what kinds of institutions we're investing in and what kind of majors we're uh, investing in. And, and I'll point our audience to two different programs as we wrap this up that I think should have been the focus of these reforms. Uh, one of them was in 2013, Obama announced a ranking system for colleges and universities based on their quality, their effectiveness, getting their people graduated without debt, significant debt, keeping costs down, yada, yada, yada. Uh, this would have been a major change to the way the federal government recognizes these programs. It would have been a precursor to the federal government actually um, forgiving debt or incentivizing people to go to the institutions that actually do right by their students. But after two years, he abandoned this plan under pressure from co uh, college uh, presidents. <laughs> As you can imagine, they weren't happy being held accountable. Federal government accounts for 90 plus percent of outstanding student loan debt. So you'd imagine the federal government should have something to say about the quality of the programs that they're investing in, but they largely don't. Uh, the second thing is, is this program called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness uh, Program, which is a very bureaucratic, poorly implemented version of a good idea, which is to incentivize people to go into the public sector and nonprofit sector includes cops, firefighters, yada, yada, yada. They should reform that program to include jobs that we need, whether they're in their public sector or not. So nurses, doctors, all these people I talked about, allow it to be private sector, not just public sector and make it way more easy to deal with because it has like sky high rejection rates and maddening 10 year, 10 year timelines on bureaucracy, et cetera. If they reform that program, better funded it, opened up the eligibility and then uh, had something to say about the institutions they invest in, I think this would be a better program. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that more specifically tailoring this and allowing 
the free market to kind of touch colleges again and pressuring them to be effective institutions would be a, a healthy thing. But that's not really what we're seeing here. We're seeing a Band-Aid solution. Well, let's move on to another very weighty subject in American life, and that's the pandemic and its aftermath, I guess, if we're in the aftermath right now. And there are two voices most associated with America's pandemic response, who we've heard from this week. The first was Dr. Anthony Fauci, you know, revered in some circles, reviled in others. Uh, and the second was the CDC, you know, and their leader. Uh, and they announced major reforms in light of mistakes that they made during COVID. Uh, let's start with the CDC, Ricky. What what did we learn about the CDC? What did they announce this past week? This goes back a few months at this point when Rochelle Walensky charged deputies to scrutinize operations at the CDC and also appointed Jim McRae to lead a review of it, um, which would produce a, rep- a published report ultimately, hopefully um, in April, where he interviewed 120 people both inside and outside of the agency. It's not yet public. It seems like there might be plans to make it public. But what we do know is the reforms that Walensky is making in response, which she's made some pretty bold statements and actually owned some of the failures that the CDC has very publicly made in the past uh, couple of years. She said, quote, for 75 years, CDC and public health have been preparing for COVID-19. And in our big moment, our performance did not reliably meet expectations. She also said, to be frank, we were responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes. So we're seeing, I think there was a lot of frustration about the lack of accountability in our health services um, over the past couple of years. And this is kind of a, a huge moment where where the CDC is saying like, yes, we actually did mess up in some very key places. And so they're overhauling and reorganizing their structure to, with the goal of improving the culture, boosting public trust, which I think is the most important part, um, emphasizing collaboration with other parts of the government, changing their reporting systems to increase accountability within the agency, sharing scientific data faster, both with public health officials and with the public, so the public can better understand what what is behind these health measures, which, you know, one of the CDC's core missions is to be kind of the the leading outreach mechanism to the public and to and to bring them along through a pandemic and help them understand why they're doing what they're doing. Um, they'll also go, Walensky's planning to go to Congress to ask them to make their funding a little more flexible since uh, Congress very specifically pigeonholes what specific money is supposed to go to. And then they have very little funds to actually access if if things change or something develops. Um, and also- Yeah, on that front, there was this data point about like how there were 150 different budget lines and specific programs funded separately by Congress. And Walensky said that, you know, she used to be the New York City Health Commissioner. She said she had 20 times more flexible dollars as New York City Health Commissioner than she did at the CDC. So part of what she's saying is just more flexibility from Congress might allow her to be more nimble in responding to these crises. I mean, I do like the idea that they're accountable to spend money as was intended by Congress, but it's clear that they need to have some degree of flexibility. And she also wants Congress to give her or the CDC the authority to require that municipalities share their health data with them so we can have a more centralized response. But all in all, the bottom line here is that she wants to make it easier for the public to understand health guidance and to be more transparent and less academic and insular. By and large, this sounds right. It, you know, There are some reforms in here that I 
that either she doesn't have the power to carry out, like some of the things you just described, or that she hasn't mentioned yet. You know, there is this great book called The Premonition by Michael Lewis. And in that book, he talks about the one change he would make to the CDC if he could make it is to change the director of the CDC from a political appointee to a career appointee. And he talks about the fact that we have renters and not owners in these jobs right now, where the average life of a person who's heading a federal agency is 18 months. So these are not people who are sticking around long enough to make a huge difference. And he says that would be a big change. Uh, you then you now start to ask yourself also, all right, you let's say we did all these reforms. Is this going to make our response to the pandemic better? I would imagine it would, but I would also I almost wish that every institution in American life would go through this exercise and saying, all right, what did we learn from the pandemic? What kind of beliefs and practices do we have? And that goes down to the individuals. What did we learn so that the next time this thing happens, we're not worse at it, which I think is a strong possibility at this point. Definitely. And I'm definitely not a fan of Walensky's. I I also don't appreciate a lot of people who agree with me that they they might have problems with her overall. But then she's actually being accountable and being one of the few public health officials who's going out there and saying like, hey, this wasn't really that great. And we made mistakes and we're going to own up to them and hopefully reform for the future. So I give her a tremendous amount of credit like this, even though I might take some issues with certain aspects of her leadership in the past, I think that this is a unique demonstration of humility in this in this pandemic and a lot of people kind of dug in deeper and and wouldn't or just kind of changed their tune and never really took account for things that they were doing in the past in the pandemic and so i i appreciate this i think this is to your point something that more more public health mechanisms need to do and also just in the government in general probably a healthy thing period regardless of the pandemic and as we transition now to fauci right and you know, explain this to us. What what has Fauci's role been, and what what is the difference between the NIH and Fauci's particular role and the role of Walensky? This is oversimplified, but effectively, the NIH is more research oriented, and the CDC is more imp- like implementing things, pre- creating policies, reaching out to the public, um, creating guidance. But Fauci has been in public service now since 1968. He was there at the NIH through um, HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, Ebola, Zika, now COVID. So very storied uh, past in, in public service. And he now is stepping down as the head of the NIAID, the, uh, which is like the allergy and infectious disease branch of the National Institute of Health. And also as is his, in his role as the chief of the immunoregulation lab there, and also as Biden's advisor, this is set to happen at the end of the year. The NIH has not appointed a successor yet, but he says that he's leaving to pursue the next chapter of his career. Um, he's in his early 80s now, and he wants to dedicate himself to traveling, writing, speaking, and inspiring the next generation of public leaders. And so the American public, especially our media and our politicians, had wildly different reactions to this news. In Fauci, we trust. Dr. Anthony Fauci made it official today. He revealed that after half a century serving in government, he's going to be stepping down in December. He needs to comply with every subpoena they slap him with. And if he doesn't, we should shackle him. And maybe we should raid his house and look for collusion with China, because those are the new rules, apparently. We're just playing by them. I think we've reached this point in American society where 
I'm not sure if somebody called me up and were like, hey, head up this really important national federal agency that I would be particularly excited about doing that, given the stakes involved. You look at what happened with Garland just a couple of weeks ago. You look at Fauci. I mean, I'm sure you could find examples from all over the spectrum, like this sort of open hostility that people have to the people we're asking to carry out critical functions of government to me is is going to limit the kinds of people who are going to want to do these jobs moving forward. That being said, Ricky, somewhere between the fawning coverage on MSNBC and what we heard on Fox News is a kind of measured assessment of what Fauci has done. I'm going to play his defense attorney, but why don't you play the prosecutor here for a second and drop some of the sort of larger mistakes that Fauci has made uh, over at least his most recent tenure? Well, so I I mean, I definitely don't believe in this like good or evil sort of this. It's the people have caricatures of him, essentially. And I remember like the Fauci ouchie and the prayer candles that people had and stuff. It it got really weird. But um, there are some legitimate concerns about how he led during COVID, especially. There was an email scandal with Dr. Francis Collins in the very beginning where they were talking about the potential of a lag bleak origin and then kind of like at the drop of a hat decided like, no, that's not what we're going to talk about publicly. And the, the internal emails were quite different from the public facing dialogue from the beginning that didn't come out until later but there was the scandal about him saying that masks are are not going to necessarily protect you from covid and saying that essentially in retrospect he admitted in order to preserve supply for medical health professionals which i think was a very and, and um, that's the beginning of this so-called uh and i think you're the first person i've heard use this term the noble lies of fauci but there was another one that yeah, you were sharing there's another with me the one other as day. well herd immunity when the vaccine was rolling out he was throwing out kind of like spitballing numbers about what percentage of people would need to either um, like have immunity through natural immunity or vaccination. And he was talking about like 70%, I think was the number that he was throwing around. And then a few months down the line, he admitted to the New York Times that he was bumping that number down a little bit in order to get people to get vaccinated to kind of raise it up ultimately. And so the idea of the noble lie is essentially just saying like, like yes, he, those were good goals that he was trying to reach, but he lied to people in the course of getting there, which really harms public health because it's like like a I know better than you kind of mindset rather than arming people with the facts and saying, hey, listen, the masks, the masks might work, but we need healthcare professionals to have them. That's a totally different way to talk to the American public that's a little less infantilizing. There's also scandals about Funding from the NIH to the EcoHealth Alliance and supporting gain of function research. And yeah, then, we've we've covered that too. Where yeah. he, as as I, you know, I generally am somebody more sympathetic to Fauci than a lot of people. He was trying to be cute with the definition there when he could have just said, "Look, like no matter how we define gain of function research, this was close enough that I just want to be honest about it, lay my cards on the table." But he was having this tug of war, right? So I agree. Like, everything you said, by and large, I agree were mistakes of his tenure. I think in in the Fauci defense category, which I know this is not a binary, I know that you have a nuanced view of this. He has been the director, uh, or been the, you know in a leadership position there since 1984. He's seen AIDS, SARS, H1N1, influenza, Ebola, COVID nineteen, monkeypox. I think a lot of people think of him only as the COVID guy, which I'll get to that part of the record. Uh, but what's interesting is you, I've been diving in over the past few days just into his record on. HIV AIDS, which is interesting. I think a lot of people felt like he could have been faster to get there, but once he got there, 
he was really forceful in pushing for major changes and breakthroughs in the antiretrovirals, which has saved so many lives. Um, I think his biggest contribution to global public health is going to be how he and George W. Bush worked together to found the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which is called PEPFAR, which is a global program that brought HIV therapies to underserved parts of the world. Some people estimated that saved 21 million lives. He then took a lot of the innovations that happened with those therapies and started to build U.S. capabilities that actually wound up allowing us to create the COVID-19 vaccines as fast as we did. And there was this critical point in his tenure that I think is the most important thing he ever did, which is in January 2020, we're talking really early in the pandemic, he and his team downloaded the sequence of the virus from the Chinese. They get the sequence of the virus, they send it to this, you know, upstart Moderna. Moderna starts working on the virus back then. I mean, the uh, the vaccine. Now, some people look at that and they're like, they have all these conspiracies. I look at that and say, that saved probably tons of lives uh, in sharing that data, acting fast. And that was happening at a time when the president of the United States was, you know, all the way through to March, the president of the United States was, uh, you know, sowing complete you know, either inaccuracies, you know, he was India saying, you know, in the early days of the pandemic in February saying this thing's going to go away, everybody's going to get better, yada, yada, you know, a guy who is at many times openly hostile to Fauci. To me, I put all that together. I say this guy made a lot of really good calls. Anybody in public life is going to make mistakes. I agree that his mistakes weren't just competence errors, but also mindset errors that happened later on. And it seems like he did some really good things, maybe got high on his own supply and overstepped at points, and this is probably a good time to give somebody else the role. But now that Fauci's going off into the sunset, I want to see other institutions and people in American life start to examine their own issues here too. Uh, and I'm not holding my breath. I like the Walensky move a little more to say we made mistakes. Like if Fauci had said, I shouldn't have lied to the American public in order to influence them, and I'm also retiring, I'd be, I'd be a little more sympathetic. But I'm, I'm team Walensky on this one. Speaking of lying to the public, we talk a lot about self-silencing on the show, but let me add a new term to our lexicon here, collective illusions. A new study from the think tank Populist claims the country is under several of those illusions, meaning Americans are conforming to ideas they think the rest of the country has, one it actually doesn't. And what we found in, in place after place, subject after subject, is we are spectacularly wrong about what the majority in America thinks and believes. And as a result, we often end up wanting to conform to the group. You know, yeah. no one likes to be against the group. And so our conformity gets weaponized and we end up following this phantom and, and we all end up doing something that almost nobody in the country really wants to do. So Ricky, what does this study say? So this is a study that was conducted for a populist by YouGov in May and June. Um, they used around 3,300 respondents and they pulled them with traditional polling and then uh, something called a list experiment method, which basically guarantees them privacy. So they got two different data points on what someone is kind of willing to admit to another person is their political opinion and what they will admit kind of behind closed doors. And so there's a ton of different topics that they that they addressed, including like, do you agree with this statement? Um, a few examples, mask wearing was effective to stop COVID-19. In private, 47% think so, and public, 59%. Um, abortion should be left up to a woman and her doctor. In public, 67%, and in private, only 58%. 
discussing gender identity in public schools is appropriate for K to three children. In private, 53%, and public, 63%. There's also whether parents should have influence over the curriculum. In public, only 52% say so, and private, 60%. There's tons and tons of examples that we could go through here. But the bottom line is that two-thirds of Americans kind of admit to self-censoring through this through this data. And it's a demonstration that even on the most critical cultural kind of hot button issues, people feel like they can't actually have an open, honest dialogue in public. Like they need to project the type of views that are more socially acceptable or that they feel that they should have. And, you know, I think this is super reminiscent of in 2016 exit polls, people weren't going to admit that they voted for Donald Trump. And then all of a sudden, there's something happening in the country that so many people didn't see coming because people were self-moderating in public and felt like they couldn't be open and honest about their political beliefs or their political will. So I think this is just yet another data point to prove that Americans are different in their public and private facing lives politically. Yeah, what's interesting is the methodology here. We'll link to the actual study. And if our listeners are so motivated, you can go to Appendix A of that study. And there is a description of how they actually get at people's private motivations. It's really fascinating. I won't go into it here. And one other fascinating point about this, when you look at the sort of cross tabs, is that the more partisan you are, the less you self-censor. So it's actually the Hispanics and independents who have the greatest number of sensitive topics that get them to double digit gaps. And also what's interesting is I wouldn't say this is convenient to any part of the political spectrum. So on the one hand, you know, if you're like tip pick education, you know, something I care a lot about, you know, some data you just cited, you know, on the one hand, there's one of the biggest gaps you saw is in parents who think that they should have more influence over their school curriculum. You know, they were more willing to privately admit that than publicly. So you'd say, all right, this sort of CRT type crowd, like anti-CRT crowd is going to point to that data and be like, hey, see, there are more people with us. But then you look at the the flip side, 43% of people say uh, schools are focusing too much on racism publicly, but that number is 10 points lower privately. So there are people performing for their political quote unquote side Uh, on different data points that you see here. And there's also some complicating factors, right? You talked about how the majority of men agree that the decision to have uh, uh, an abortion should be left to a woman and her doctor, that changes to 45, 60% changes to 45% when it goes private. But when you ask people Roe versus Wade should be overturned, that had the one of the least amount of variances, only a 2% variance. So basically, people are publicly and privately saying the same thing. So it is a little tricky when you go through this data to be like, all right, what does this mean from a policy perspective? But in the end, I'm also left with the question, Ricky, how much of this is new? I mean, I think that self-censorship is just like, you can't say everything that comes to your mind. But I would say that this is a way more pernicious thing in society right now. And especially on college campuses, you see it on at a ridiculous level. And there's a whole generation of people who have this like dissonance between what they actually think and what they're willing to say publicly. I would say like the the one question about race was the only one that I saw. There might be more in the study, but the only one that I saw where it seemed like the more conservative position was the outward spoken position. I would say 
almost all the other ones, it was the other way around where, where the more progressive or liberal assertion was what people were more willing to say in public. That wouldn't surprise me because I think a lot of our institutions, our, our CEOs, our colleges have kind of moved that way politically in an outward Yeah, just before sense. we move off of that, I do think there are, there are others that are pointing in that direction for various reasons. One is the question on transgender rights. So question, the government should protect transgender Americans against discrimination. This had 59% of people say privately that they support that and 56% publicly. So actually more people privately said we should support transgender rights or at least protect them against discrimination. And those are very high numbers. If you look at a lot of these other numbers in this poll about almost any other issue, it's hard pressed to find numbers up you know, near 60%. So I do think, and there are other data points, but I do think there's, this is what I get at. There's this persecution complex, I think that happens on the right. But when you're like, for example, like that public school data that we're talking about, I'm like, all right, those are people who in their community feel that they're going to be shut down in some way if they say, hey, like actually we should be teaching about racism in our schools. But for some reason, they feel like they can't share that belief. Yeah. I mean, I think there's for all numerous examples, but I think especially the things that are more conservative that you feel like you can't say out loud publicly that there might be more of a consensus on. I think part of that goes back to the kind of Trump election and this. There was kind of because he was such a colorful character, shall we say, I think there was a sense of like attaching character values to political values more so than we've had in the past and kind of an idea that people are reprehensible because of their views, the basket of deplorables kind of outlook. So I think there's some legitimacy to the sense that in terms of people who aren't in the aggressive partisan spheres, there's a there's a more publicly acceptable, at least in, in New York and in certain progressive circles and in dominant institutions, there's there's a convenience to taking the more progressive stance in public than there is in private. I'm sure it's different around the country. I'm sure it's different in hyper-partisan areas of the country as well. Yeah, but I think that's a reflection. If we lived in Biloxi, Mississippi, for example, it would be the other way around, right? Like where, you know, actually saying, hey, I actually do think we should teach more racism, you know? Like, yeah, but I would say in terms of the like institutional control and what's happening in Hollywood and what's happening in Fortune 500 companies and what's happening in universities and what's happening in all these these institutions that make a huge cultural change, I would say that there is a kind of dominant sense that you can't speak your mind politically. But it's not, a, I mean, it shouldn't even be a partisan argument because regardless whether or not it's moving people right or left, it's not healthy for a democracy to not actually have conversations about what you believe and to feel like, you know, you you need to have like the kitchen table conversations that are not the same as the outdoor conversations. That's that's not healthy. That's not healthy at all. Because as as the as he explained, um, Ted Ro- or Todd Rose explained in his interview, like if we're chasing some sort of ideal because we think everyone else thinks it, and we're not actually speaking our minds, that's that's just that's crazy. We need to be able to have conversations to not attach like character flaws to people if we disagree with them. To be able to like have healthy arguments. And actually talk to each other and not just like lie about our opinions in public. I think we separate the institutional argument from what this poll is doing, which is saying what's happening in American life writ large. Obviously, the two are related. We could, you know, we have and will continue to go through different institutions. I, I largely agree that the institutions you're naming, Hollywood, et cetera, have a certain left wing bias. Uh, 
But I think what this is getting at is like, all right, how is this trickling down? And I think what I see in this is it's a little bit more complicated. And honestly, if I'm looking at the numbers, they're not they're not as dramatic as I would have expected. And I, I wonder, like, if you go back to the 60s, the 50s, take an example like gay rights or even the fact that there were so many more closeted gay people who not only couldn't speak their minds about those issues or, or actually identify for who they truly were, but couldn't act upon it either. In some cases, couldn't act upon it under penalty of the law. To me, in any point in American society, there were certain opinions that people probably held privately or were more likely to hold privately that they couldn't share publicly. And what I would want from him next is a historical analysis, which might be hard to do because you couldn't go back and do this list analysis then. So it, it all depends on how alarmed people are today about the state of free speech. All right, let's do some quick updates. First, Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. Uh, two men have not, who were accused of leading the plot to kidnap her were convicted this week in a way, vindicating the DOG prosecutors who failed to get a single conviction in the first federal trial in April. These are the two accused ringleaders. This was their second trial. The previous jury couldn't reach a unanimous decision on these gentlemen. This is Adam Fox and Barry Croft. They That jury acquitted two others. A lot of people jumped on those other acquittals, including we, we talked about breaking points a couple of weeks ago, but now there's a conviction. And what was interesting is that the U.S. attorneys in this case basically focused a lot on what happened before the FBI got involved. And from what I can tell, we're able to successfully convince this jury that, hey, even if you assume, you know, the worst of this, which once again, entrapment has never been proven in a court in either of these cases, especially this one, even if you were to assume the FBI, like, and somehow tainted this at some point, these guys had very specific ideas that they were starting to act on to commit harm to the governor of Michigan before any you know FBI agent got involved. To me, this seems significant. Yeah. I mean, I think that the first time around, I, I don't know that people necessarily expected there to be so much of a sense of entrapment that became the kind of public, the public narrative here. But I think arguing, obviously, that before they got involved, these guys would have done something quite dangerous either way is much more effective. And, you know, there are still the two acquittals and this was a hung jury case, but I would much, I was suspicious of the FBI's role and the scale of it. in in our first conversation about it, I would much rather live in a world where this was a conviction, this wasn't entrapment. And I'm glad to see that the DOJ can have at least one victory to kind of reform trust in them right now. So I'm, I'm happy to see that this, this seems to have vindicated them to a good degree. I'm, there's still eight other men that Michigan is prosecuting in connection with this, and there were the two acquittals. So we'll have to see what it what it turns out to be in the end. But there seems to be a very clear gradation of involvement in terms of how much these these guys were really at the helm of this. And there are two others who pled guilty pre-trial, also worth mentioning. So you know, as we go out on this one. My request of some of our friends in the alternative media who said that the federal government created this conspiracy and they used as their evidence the fact that these other two gentlemen were acquitted. Now, I would love for those people to square that point of view with the fact that there are now uh, actual jury verdicts going the other way here. And I would love for them to to explain their theory to me, please, because it's a little incomprehensible. But we have some Musk news, Ricky. What's going on here? Well, so this is actually just a Twitter whistleblower who um, his name is Peter Zatko. He's known as Mudge. He's a former hacker um, and the former security chief at Twitter. 
he came out with a report that's kind of playing into Musk's hand, but they're not related necessarily. I think it'll just ultimately probably help Musk down the line. And he's alleging that they're lying to the public, to shareholders and to regulators as well. And a quote from his complaint says that there are egregious deficiencies, negligence, willful ignorance, threats to national security and democracy that are taking place in Twitter. So this is a pretty damning assertion. He sent the complaint to the Senate Judiciary and Intelligence Committees, who both pledged to conduct their own investigations. Chuck Grassley and Dick Durbin are collaborating on how they're going to respond. Um, But any movement will probably take a long time, especially the SEC investigations tend to be quite slow. And there's a potential that the DOJ, that Congress, that the SEC, and that the FTC could now all investigate Twitter. Um, But I think there are a ton of different things that we can take away from this. But one thing that's very pertinent with the Musk news and the back and forth about the 5% uh, bot figure that Twitter provided that Elon says there's actually way more bots on the platform and he wants more um, openness about. Uh, essentially, this this backs Elon on that and says that the measures that they're using are tailored towards advertisers and not really like the overall sense of how many bots are on the system. And this will potentially weaken Twitter's, Twitter's case in court against Musk if, if this can be used as evidence that he was, in fact, right about the one thing that he said was the issue that he was taking with this deal, essentially. So if you're on Twitter's side, you're saying this guy's just trying to collect the judgment for the whistleblower statute. He's a disgruntled employee. If you're on Musk's side, you're saying, all right, this guy's confirming what we knew all along. Thankfully, in about two months... We will have a judge who's going to sift through these facts and say, what really happened here? And is it even relevant to the contract that these two people signed? There's a third world, which you know the Silicon Valley expert Benedict Evans kind of points to, which he says it's possible to both believe that Musk's case against Twitter is mostly bullshit and also believe that Twitter is an extraordinarily bad run and dysfunctional company. That's also a possibility that like, look, Musk isn't helped by this, but Twitter is is really in the crosshairs here. And one last update that we have here is a new suite of primary results that I know you've been following, Ravi. So what happened there? Well, my home state of New York and Florida both had primaries, but there also was a uh, two special elections in New York that were notable. Uh, I'll just go through some of the primary results. They're pretty straightforward stuff that we're expecting. So Val Demings, who's a former U.S. representative and chief of uh, the Orlando police will be officially Marco Rubio's challenger for the Senate seat. Charlie Crist, a former Republican governor of Florida, will be challenging Ron DeSantis. Matt Gates easily won his primary uh, in the Florida panhandle. He's weathering a child sex trafficking investigation and other controversies. The Orlando area is also poised to elect the country's first Gen Z member of Congress, 25-year-old Maxwell Alejandro Frost. But those are all primary results. A lot of those are things that we were expecting. It, you know, my general sense is Democrats are going to have a hard time winning statewide in Florida, given the, the trends in the polls there. But most Democrats I know are actually really excited about the results because there were these special elections in New York, notably in the Hudson Valley. Democrat Pat Ryan won a special election for that seat. Most analysts think he dramatically outperformed expectations. There was another race, which is New York's solidly red 23rd district, in which a Republican defeated a Democrat by but by a much closer than expected margin. The margin of victory was seven points. And so um, we'll link in the show notes, 538 had a really good analysis of this and essentially said, 
special election performance and actually outperforming expectations in special elections are actually really relevant to how 538 forecasts midterm elections. So essentially they're saying Democrats have been outperforming. You know, there have been four special elections for the House since the Dobbs decision and Democrats have outperformed their expected margins in those elections by an average of nine points. And 538 is saying this is relevant. It's not a ton of data, but in their model, these kinds of uh, data points in special elections are relevant to how they project out midterm results. So Democrats, by and large, I think are getting pretty excited uh, ahead of the midterm elections. And so we'll just keep an eye out on these. But a busy day across the country in our elections. And our first Gen Z or maybe. I think there's a second one up in New Hampshire. A, um, a girl named Caroline running as a Republican. Caroline Levitt, I want to say. But I'll follow up with how she's doing. I don't know. But we have we have a red and a blue Gen Zer for the first time. What's the oldest a Gen Zer can be? You might not know this. It's, it's all like theoretical. But like I've heard 95, 97. So what is that like? At most, like twenty-five to twenty-seven. So this would be like the first time that we're 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 in the running. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, exciting. Uh, well, I think that's all we got today. If you're listening to this podcast, make sure to subscribe. Give us that five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast. Recommend us to your friends. If you're on YouTube, hit that like button. Tell us what you love about the show. Post about it on the socials, and we will be back next week in studio. Next week's going to be exciting also because midway through the week, I'm going to be heading to Lehigh County in Pennsylvania, a swing district, and I'll be reporting out later in the week, you know, the Fetterman race, the gubernatorial race, how swing voters and others are viewing some of the hot button issues of this election cycle. And so make sure to be with us next week. uh, And we'll be right back here wherever you listen or watch us. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey, Wes Parnell, and Ariane Misra. Editing and sound design by Monica Spitia and Joe Engelbrecht. And video editing by Ava Maldonado. 